0: Friends, it is such a joy to see that fellowship, people who are united in Jesus, communing with one another, conversing with one another in ways that they may not do normally. Um, You know, I'm often envious of times past where churches, parishes were really in a small community, and yet at the same time I am grateful that we get to have so many people come from so many different places. And as we get into Christmas time, I love the season. Um, I'm the first person who wants to have Christmas music on. I want to get lights up. I enjoy snow. I love the smell of Christmas cookies baking in the house. I am grateful that the women left a bunch of our sugar cookies, because that means I get to eat more. Normally, it's like, no, I need to take them before they leave, and I was, I actually did not take any, and more came back. So, that was pretty cool. Um, I'm also grateful for this time of year that so many more people are somehow, in some way, focusing on the coming of the King, the Christ child, the Son of God. I mean, you see Advent devotionals, which are prolific, and our local radio station plays Christmas music 24-7. Decorations are everywhere. I do have a problem with decorations going up like in September, but that's beside the point. But while it's hard to pinpoint, there's something different about this time of year in 21st century America. It's not necessarily the same way across the globe. It's a blessing that we have, that God has brought us and allowed us to live here at this time. Why is Jesus' arrival as a baby in a manger so important? For 21st century Jews, it was important because they had been awaiting the arrival of a promised Messiah. It was part of their culture. But leading up to His birth, they didn't have this. They were just waiting. It was darkness. But as 21st century Americans who have access to know that Messiah has come, sadly, the awaiting of the King is not cultural. So why should His arrival matter to us? Well, when we understand why He came, our excitement about His coming grows. When we consider the purpose of His coming, His mission, our joy this season will likely grow. And so, my prayer this morning is that we collectively understand His mission so that we are more and more encouraged, we grow in our excitement of the coming King. And the best way to understand Jesus' mission is to hear it directly from Him. It's true of anyone. You can read a mission statement somewhere, but when you hear it from the person who wrote it, it's different. During our Philippalship gathering this Wednesday morning, Uh, Will Evans had commented to Joel that the fact that Joel Gilliland's life and his mission, they look the same and therefore it impacts people. See, you may not know this, but Joel has his life verse engraved on his glasses. It's pretty cool. He did it because he can't remember the address really well. Reminds him but on cue when Will asked him, hey, hey, what's your mission? In Joel form, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and depend upon no one. Straight away. <laughs> it was incredible. He's internalized what he believes the Lord has asked him to do. And the reality is that it manifests itself if you know Joel he works quietly with his hands so he may walk properly before the lord and others it's incredible if you don't know that's first thessalonians 4:11 and 12 maybe you have a mission statement maybe you have a life verse or maybe you don't Whether you do or whether you do not doesn't matter because this morning Jesus is actually going to give you your mission. And my prayer has been that this morning you leave here both knowing and understanding your mission so that way your life reflects it and it makes an impact just as Joel makes an impact. See, having a mission statement given to you You may be saying, well, no, but it's my mission. If you go into Google and you type in personal mission statement, you will find 1.4 billion responses in like .39 seconds. That's a lot. If you're hired at Chick-fil-A, there's an expectation that you strive to glorify God by being faithful stewards of all that is entrusted to you to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And for those who are members at Hope Chapel, you covenanted to bring glory to God through the transferring of lives by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is common for you to adopt a mission statement that was given to you. And so this morning, I encourage you to listen closely so you may adopt the mission statement given to you by Jesus Himself. See, God, when God called us to follow Him and changed our hearts so that we see Him as He is and desire to follow Him, He then gave you a mission. And so here in John 17, through the apostle who spent time, who leaned on Jesus' bosom, you're going to see that your mission is more than just what you do. It's who you are. See, I'm grateful for what we find here because it means that we don't have to follow 613 Levitical laws that are found throughout, outlined in the Torah, external stuff. There's no way I could remember 613. I can barely remember to take out the trash on a Friday. (laughs) I am so grateful for recurring meeting reminders, because that's how I remember to take it out. 613 would be ridiculous. So thankfully, He gives us one. He gives us one job to do. We are to glorify God while we are here on earth. So come, let's look at John 17 together. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I pray that you become more and more encouraged as He connects your job to glorify Him with who you are in Him. So look with me at John 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, if you don't know what these words are, listen to last week, look back. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So, you see this repeated emphasis on glory, and if you spent some time in this chapter encircled glory or glorified, your page would be filled with circles. It's helpful to see. But this is not new because back in chapter 13, John wrote, verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The Father and the Son's glory is important. And in chapter 15, Jesus said, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so Jesus is saying here in 17 that God is glorified through the Son when the Son fulfills His mission. And what's His mission? It's right here. Jesus was given authority over all flesh. To give eternal life. To who? To all, but He doesn't stop there, to all whom the Father has given to the Son. Now, we need to consider that closely because, first of all, Jesus doesn't leave us wondering what He means by the idea of eternal life. See, he clarifies what eternal life is in verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, I think for most, when they first think of eternal life, they think of physical immortality or spiritual immortality or this ethereal, I don't know what it is. But it's not physical in nature. It's actually what occurs when those whom the Father has given to Jesus know God. And Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent to make Himself known. So it's a spiritual reality that simply takes place. Now when you look at this verse 3 that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, a dear friend of mine who's both a Bible scholar and a seminary president reminded me that Christ would have best been heard through the ears of His disciples as Messiah. So we think of Jesus Christ and it's a name to us. But for Jews, they heard Jesus the coming Messiah. See, eternal life is that His disciples, now remember this section is for the eleven. He's talking to the eleven because Judas has already exited the building. Eternal life is that His disciples would know God and Jesus the Messiah whom God sent. So, if we take all of this and put it together, it says, Jesus was given authority over all flesh to give His disciples the knowledge of God and Himself whom God had sent. Now, there's a statement. Let me try to simplify it even more. Jesus is looking at His closest friends, and He's saying about Himself, I was sent by God to make God known to you and make it known to you that I am the Messiah. And then He goes on, reinforcing His purpose He says, I, talking about Himself, Jesus, glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do, and now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had You before the world existed. He's saying, Lord, I've done what You've asked of Me. I've made You known to My disciples. Now, restore My glory. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a ridiculous request unless the one requesting it had always existed before the world came into existence. Think about it. Restore my glory. Saying that to the Father... See, the Jews were fully aware that the only way that someone had been in the presence of God before he was here on earth is that he had to be perfectly holy to begin with. They acknowledged throughout the entire book of John that you were sent. You came from the Father. They knew it. And so here Jesus is communicating his deity as one with the Father for all time. And so, in fulfilling the work God gave Him to do, in fulfilling His mission, Jesus glorified the Father. So, glory, therefore, is rightly directed towards the Father when we fulfill the work God's given us to do. That's the principle. But how do we know what the work is? Is that not the question we all ask, hey, Lord, what do you want me to do? How many of you have asked God that question? Lord, what do you want me to do here? Well, since He's created us and He gifted us in different ways and gave us different talents, it seems appropriate to ask Him that question that we use them for the purposes we were created for. So, how might we best understand what our job is? Well, here's what we see in Scripture. Jesus stepped out of glory, which is what we celebrate now. We celebrate the historical reality that Christ Jesus, the Messiah, who, according to Paul, said, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what he did. He stepped out of glory. How many of you find it difficult to even get off the couch to welcome someone at your front door because you were comfortable? <laughs> and He chose to step out of glory to come. And now He says, restore my glory. I've done my job. He's completed the work that He was given. You've got to say, well, then how did He do that? Well, it's a good question, and he answers it. Verse 6 I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. See, this is what is directly from Jesus' mouth. It's clear. Jesus didn't give eternal life, the knowledge of God, to everyone. He did it to those whom the Father gave Him. And then Jesus goes on to further describe those whom the Father has given Him, second half of that verse. Yours they were, and you gave them to Me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given Me is from you for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. See, the disciples were created by God, and therefore they were gods to give. Is that fair? He gives them to Jesus, and He says, Hear, Jesus, give them eternal life. He says, They have kept your word Jesus speaking of the disciples to the Father, and I've revealed you, the Father, to them, and they've come to believe that you are God and that you sent me. And in doing that, Jesus has given eternal life to the eleven. And then he continues in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. When you sit in your study or in your chair or in your closet or on the couch or in your car, wherever it is that you spend time with the Lord and you look at this passage, it is easy to see all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. You're like, that's a whole lot of words and I'm just going to move on. And if you actually take all of this all the way through verse 10, there's a whole bunch of glory and a whole bunch of mine and you've given and it's even easier to miss the point. But when you pause long enough to think about it, this becomes more and more beautiful. The Creator of everything is praying for His disciples, His closest friends. He's not praying for the world, but for those given to Him by God. And He says that those who are gods are Jesus's, and Jesus's are gods. He makes no distinction between the two. Now, if you're sitting there in His midst and you believe that He is the Son of God and the Messiah, and He says, these are mine and I am yours, they're saying, wait a minute, I'm His. That's amazing. And if that's not enough, here's the Messiah who says, and I am glorified in them. Now, If you're like me, you're going, how is that the case? How are you as God glorified in me because I am not you? So I had to say, how's that work? Well, Jesus had a mission to give eternal life, the knowledge of God and Himself as Messiah to the disciples. And He's done that. He's changed their hearts so they see Him differently. They see Him differently than the rest of the world, which means they're different. And as His disciples see Him as Messiah, as He's recognized as the Lord, the Son of God, they glorify Him because the only thing that can explain the change in the way they see Him now is the God, man, Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, the Lord, is Christ, the Lord doing something in them. See, it's not in their work that they glorify Him, but in their acknowledgement of who He is and in their belief of Him. When we see God as God, He is glorified through us. And, friends, that makes it a whole lot easier because it means we don't have to do 613 different laws. Then we get to verse 11. And it gets even more confusing, and yet all the more beautiful. And I am no longer in the world. No, just stop. He's standing right in front of them. <laughs> I, I, if you're sitting there, you've got to be going, ah, I don't get it. He says, I am no longer in the world but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Wait a minute! You're no longer in the world. You're coming to me, but you're standing here with me, and I'm in the world. Like, it's really confusing. But hear it again. I'm no longer in the world, but they are. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we... Are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Did you catch this amazing transfer of responsibility? Jesus is asking the Father to take over protecting his disciples he asks God to keep them in his name. In essence, he's saying, Hey, Dad, um, while I was with them, I kept them. Now, I'm coming back to you. I guarded them. It's your turn now. Now, when you get to the end of this, you might think or some might think, Well, Jesus wasn't able to guard the heart of one of his disciples. I can't trust him. And and if you don't consider the rest of Scripture, there might be some merit to the question, but I'd prefer to consider the totality of God's Word. And so Jesus points out that the one who seemingly got away was actually part of the plan to begin with. See, in chapter 13, it was Jesus who instructed Judas at the Passover meal, hey, what you're going to do, go do quickly. Jesus knew what was going on. Judas didn't somehow escape. It was planned. Scholars have described that statement there at the, the end of verse 12. As a reference to Psalm 41.9, where the psalmist says, "'Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread.'" has lifted His heel against Me. That's what happened at the Passover meal. The one who eats this… So, Jesus has fulfilled His mission on earth. He's transferring the care of His followers to God, and that brings us to verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, there's this clear distinction between being in the world and no longer being in the world. He's leaving and he's praying so that his joy would be fulfilled in his disciples. So you have to ask, what is his joy? Well, Hebrews 12.2 says... To fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What was the joy that set before Him? To redeem a people for Himself. That was His joy. He despised the shame, and there, as a result, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here he's saying, I'm coming to you to sit down at my rightful place at the right hand of God. My joy has been fulfilled. I have redeemed those that you've given me. See, his joy was the accomplishment of his mission. His mission was to glorify God by giving eternal life to His disciples, those who God has given And So, not only is He transferring His responsibility to protect His followers to God, He's also transferring the mission to His disciples. So, He's transferred responsibility for protecting and guarding to God who can do that, and now He's transferring the mission of making God known to those who are still in the world. The spiritual, the intangible, remains with the spiritual, and the earthly, the tangible, remains with those who have come to know God as Messiah. And in verse 14, he continues, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He says, they're no longer of the world. They've already been changed. By what? Well, look at it. I have given them what? Your word. See, God's word is what changes hearts. Our actions can complement His word. and potentially make His Word more palatable or more trustworthy as our lives match it, but it's God's Word that changes hearts. His disciples have been changed, and He asked God to protect them because now they're different. Now the world hates them. Verse 16, He reiterates, "...they are not of the world." just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, as you sent me into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So he's given his disciples their mission. They've been transferred out of the world, and now he's sending them back into the world, just as he was sent into the world. His mission is now their mission. They're to glorify God by making God known by making Jesus Christ Messiah known to God assent. Well. But that's a big mission. And then we get to verse 20, and His conversation with the Lord shifts. He says, "I do not ask for these only. Who are these only? His disciples, the eleven. But also for those who will believe in me, the me is Jesus the Messiah, through there the disciples' word. So what's the disciples' word? Well, it's the testimony that we are studying today. It's God's word. It's the testimony that we have in the Gospels. We have three Gospels, Matthew's testimony, Mark's testimony, we have John's testimony, and then we have Luke's gospel, which is also a detailed and historical account of the life of Jesus in Luke, but then also in Acts of the Apostles. But His Word, their Word, is also the application of the testimony that's found in the 21 letters or the epistles, and it's also found in the same Apostles' final account in Revelation, And we believe all of this on account of their faithfulness. That's their word. And because we have believed, Jesus prays for us. Friends, while Jesus walked on earth, Jesus prayed for you. Michelle, He prayed for you. Silas and Jaden and Adrian and Abby and Kevin and Rachel and Will and Lydia and Bethany and Lauren and James. He prayed for you. Like, that's humbling. And friends, it cannot be overstated. Don't miss this. So, let's say you checked out, found yourself wondering, hey, what's for lunch, or when is this guy going to stop talking, or you're bored, or who knows? Come back. Just for a second, because this cannot be missed. Jesus, God incarnate, who stepped out of glory, who by His Word spoke everything into existence, right? Let there be, and it happened. While he walked on earth, he spoke. Wind and waves cease, they obey. By his word, cleanses a leper, raises Lazarus from the dead. As in the testimony, it says Jesus is speaking to God for you. Let that sink in. Because when Jesus speaks, it happens. And so here's the prayer that He's speaking for you. That they, or in the context of a local congregation, that we, His followers, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus prays that his followers would be united, unified in Christ, so that the world may believe that Jesus, who he says he is. Now, don't assume that what you thought you heard is actually what Jesus intended. Do you guys follow that? See, he's not praying here that the whole world would believe in him. That's not what he prays. It's not what he said. He didn't pray that the world would place their faith and trust in him. What did he pray? That we would be unified. That we would be one. See, Jesus knows the potpourri of believers that would eventually place their faith and trust in Him, and He prays that this entire disparate group of people would be one. And as a result of being one, unified, there would be no doubt that Jesus is indeed sent by God to make God known, because there's no reason they would be one otherwise. And as God is known, what happened with the disciples? They were transferred into the kingdom. Just as Jesus gave a mission to His disciples, He's given each of us a mission. Every follower of Jesus has a mission, and it's the same mission that the disciples were given, it's the same mission that Jesus was given. It's one and the same. We are to make God known. We are to make Jesus Christ, the Messiah, known so that God's people would be redeemed from the world. Look with me in verse 22. Remember who he's speaking about, who he's praying for. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even, even as you love me. See, if you know God and you know Jesus Christ as His Son, the Messiah, then this prayer is for you. The glory that God has given to Jesus, get this, has been given to you. It doesn't say He will give it to you. This is not a future thing. It's a present reality. Again. See, the purpose of giving us that same glory is not for our glory, but that we would be unified so that the world knows that God sent Jesus. He prays that all who believe in Him would be with Him. See, when we're with Him, that's when His glory is on full display. And that means that not only is His glory that's been given to us our present reality, it's also our future hope that we will be with Him to experience His glory completely. So, what's our job? Our job is to glorify the Lord Jesus by making God the Father and Jesus the Messiah known to the world. That's our job to glorify the Lord Jesus by making God the Father and Jesus the Messiah known to the world. But friends, it's more than a job. It's who we are. It's our identity. So let me close with this thought. We see over and over and over in this passage that Jesus was not of this world. Though he was in the world, he was not of this world. We also see that we, followers of Jesus, are not of this world. We are in the world, but we are not of this world. We've been changed. See, verse 16, if you underline it, speaks of a positional reality of the disciples when he says, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. And then because in 20, I'm praying for those that would believe in their word, it applies to us as well. We are not of this world. Though they still lived in the world, they were no longer of this world. They were different. See, on account of God's word given to them in Jesus, they believed in Jesus and were transformed. And the same is true of us. When we believe, Friends, it's not when we're baptized. It's not when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's when we believe. It's not when we choose to do what is right. It's not when we choose to, you know, serve or give or do all the... It's when we believe. We are transferred into the kingdom of His Son. That means we are no longer of this world. And our purpose is the same as the disciples and of Jesus. Guys, this is huge. We have been called out of the world, transferred out of the world, to be sent back into the world, made different, so that way we glorify the Lord by making God and Jesus Christ the Messiah known to the world. That's the sum of our responsibility, friends. It's to live as Jesus lived. It's to love this world. To live as the disciples would. To engage this world. To serve. To defend. To impact the world. To share God's Word. To share the truth of the saving work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners for the glory of God. Friends, Proverbs 14.23 says, In all toil there is profit. It applies here. See, the more we work, and it's not work doing works, it's not work doing service, it's not work giving. The more we work to make God known, the more profit there is. But what's the profit of fulfilling our mission? The glory of God expands. The glory of God is made known to the world because it's what Jesus did while He was here on earth. Go back to verse 3. It says, this is eternal life, that they know you, right? The only true God in Jesus Christ whom I have ascended, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. See, that's the mindset we're called to have. To work for His glory, to pursue Christ for His glory, to love for His glory, to serve for His glory, to encourage others for His glory, to sacrificially give for His glory, to risk for His glory, to sing for His glory, to preach for His glory, to invest into others for His glory, to make disciples for His glory. I sense that's why Paul wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, so that way He's glorified. So this Christmas season, let that be our mindset. Our pursuit. See, Jesus Christ prayed for you while here on earth. He asked the Father that you would be in him, just as they are united, so therefore he may be in you. Jesus says twice, very short period of time, I in them. We know that everything he asks come to pass. That means it's already true of those who believe it's our hope our assurance our confidence but there's a problem not everybody believes there may be some in this room that don't believe i guarantee you there are people that you will encounter today that do not believe guaranteed see If you haven't believed, I pray this morning I've made known to you at least who God is. And I pray that you're willing to look at the sun, that you may believe. See when someone believes, all the promises we heard today immediately become true. It's not a progression over time. It's immediate. Jesus was praying for them then. See, if you are His, you come to believe. And when you believe that you are His, then Jesus prayed for you. And when Jesus prayed for you, He asked that God would protect you, that God the Father would guard you. Friends, that's beautiful. How many of you woke up this morning and say, God is guarding me? God is protecting me. See, if that's our first thought when we get up and we get out of bed, that God the Father is in fact protecting and guarding us, we start to have a confidence that we would not have before. I know there are days that I wake up and that's not my first thought. See, oftentimes I sit there and say, I need you, which is true. But I say I need you because it means that I actually don't believe that I've experienced you. This week, the Lord has challenged me that it's not I need you, that it's I'm yours. And you are in me. Therefore, I don't need you. I have you. That's totally different, guys. See, when we say we need, the enemy tries to make us think that we don't have, that maybe we somehow have to grasp it, and he Removes the truth from us. But when we go back to His Word and He says, no, 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 that's not it. The enemy has deceived you. You have me. In fact, I've already transferred you to me. I'm in you. Friends, that's totally different. Let's see... There is nothing better, especially during this season, to know that not only does eternal hope await us, eternal hope is in us. See, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, you can do it in the name of the Lord Jesus because He is already in you. See, it's whatever you do, you're already glorifying God because Jesus is in you. Be aware of it, friends, for the sake of the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, Your disciples knew You intimately. and even though they had been with you for years and they watched you do the miraculous, you so kindly and gently petitioned to the Father on their behalf to encourage them. Lord, we are grateful for what you've done, and at the same time, we need your help to realize what you've done that your prayer was not just for the disciples or not just for a people long off, but your prayer was for each one of us. Lord, let your Spirit work on our hearts that we can hear this prayer applied to our own hearts. That as we lead up to celebrating the arrival of the King that we would be more and more aware of Your glory, more and more aware of Your work in our lives, more and more aware that You are protecting and guarding as Your Son asked. Lord, glorify us. You've placed Your glory in us. Glorify us, not for our sake, but for Yours. Lord, it's in Your precious, holy name I pray, amen.